Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area, and today with me, as always, are... I'm Hai Chen Bui, a USA Today contributor and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I am Anya Crittenton, associate editor at The Tracking Board. And we have some exciting news for you guys, because I finally joined the cool kids and finished watching Stranger Things last night, which means we can talk about it. Yeah. And so our entire episode today is going to be devoted to that Netflix series that has taken the world by storm. People are people haven't stopped talking about it yet, which is pretty cool because Netflix shows usually kind of come and go in the blink of an eye. Yeah, they have a short shelf life, but Stranger Things is one of those shows that actually has relied on word of mouth more than any advertising. They started advertising for it long after it dropped, I think. Mm-hmm. I saw, like, I visited New York, like, a week after I'd finished Stranger Things, which is also, in turn, a week after it had, like, two or three weeks after it had been dropped. Um, and I, that just then I was seeing, like, ads in Times Square for Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. And I like, wow. Yeah, I remember the trailer being released. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, the trailer was good, but I wasn't, like, super in love with it and then i remember it hit and like everyone was talking about yeah, it yeah i haven't seen someone anybody re- like i haven't seen like the zeitgeist react to stranger things or to a netflix show like this since like house of cards season one or like origin the, like the first origins of the new black season um and then i feel like netflix has released so many shows since then that it's now like it takes a really good show to get like above the fray of mm-hmm. the rest of Netflix's like originals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, if you guys haven't seen Stranger Things yet, short summary, it is an eight episode sci-fi supernatural horror show um, created by the Duffer Brothers uh, and it stars Winona Ryder uh, various other kind of new char- new actors um, and a lot of kids a lot of kids and it stems it starts in this small Indiana town Hawkins, Indiana um, where a kid Will Byers disappears and the whole t- the whole town kind of goes on a search for him, um, but he disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and there may or may not be some government conspiracy at play. Mm-hmm. Real anymore would be spoilers, but our episode will be spoiler-filled, um, so if you haven't watched Danger Things yet, you know, <laughs> maybe stop, stop, stop listening. The, stop the episode now. <laughs> Go... Take your Sunday or your Monday or whatever mm-hmm. and watch Stranger Things. It's only eight hours, and then come back and then finish this episode. Because mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot, like, there's, I mean, there, we really can't talk about the show without spoilers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of relies heavily on, like, mysteries and things that are revealed. So, um, so I think overall, it's fair to say that you two probably enjoyed it a lot more than I did. Mm-hmm. I think HD enjoyed it the most. HD enjoyed it the most, and then Willoughby, and then Anya, which is not to say I hated it. Mm-hmm. Because I found a lot about it to be enjoyable. I just found that there was a lot to critique as well. Was my only thing. Which doesn't... I don't think that has to negate the enjoyment of it. I can do both. Mm-hmm. I am a complex human being with a brain. <laughs> with emotions. <who> can, and- <laughs> with emotions. We'll get to those later. <laughs> so, where do we want to begin, you guys? So, I think one of the biggest critiques we've seen in general um, is... It's a little bit derivative because it pulls a lot of influence from like 80s culture and 80s movie genres. So we see like a lot of influence from the Steven Spielberg movies, such as The Goonies and E.T. Um, like a lot of scenes that are cut directly from those movies, and mm-hmm. um, people are like, "Oh, a lot like, of kids on bikes." A lot of kids on bikes. Um, kids on bikes. <laughs> and a lot of people say that like that doesn't make for a strong 
story because it's just you know jigsaw puzzles of different types of stories. Yeah, we've got Stephen King movies. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got uh, the teenage like slasher film, mm-hmm. like John Carpenter movies. Yeah, and '80s horror movies like Poltergeist as well. Um, so, do you guys think that it is derivative, or do you think it's strong enough on its own as original story? I think that the original elements are strong enough. Um, there are actually a lot of really unique ideas in the series that I really liked um, and that I thought were really strong. Um, we'll get to this in a minute, but like it was the writing and like kind of the narrative structure that I had more issue with rather than like specifically what it was drawing on from because I felt like they did some really unique things with it mm-hmm. that made it its own thing. Oh, he's about to jump. <laughs> Sorry. Anya's dog is behind her, so Willoughby and I were just really excited. I usually have him not in my room, but he was so sleepy. <laughs> and he was so, like, content that I had to just, like, I didn't want to, like, wake him. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> we can, like, edit this out. No, no it's, it's fun. It's cute. It's <laughs> okay. Special guest Ajax. <laughs> special guest Ajax. Um, anyway, so I feel like there were unique elements so it wasn't derivative. I feel like the more of the problems lied with the fact that it's very clearly like a freshman outing for the Duffer Brothers. I think they had two credits to their name before this, and the earliest one was last year. Yeah. So I think the problems more stem with the fact that they are clearly still quite new to this mm-hmm. and haven't kind of tightened their storytelling yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are a lot of uh, narrative holes in Stranger Things, but I think, like, personally, I found the, the strength of the characters and their arcs to be so strong and compelling that I was willing to forgive a lot of the narrative holes and some, and some of even just, like, the weird structuring and pacing at some points. Like, I remember Anya was telling us before that she was like, oh, the flashbacks, especially towards, like, towards the end of the show and the finale were very strange and strangely placed and kind of, like, were they really there to motivate the characters or something? <laughs> yeah, I have problems with those flashbacks. They just were not emotionally earned. Mm-hmm. And they didn't... The scene was already dramatic enough that you didn't need to, like, have those as a parallel. Mm-hmm. Like, Hopper's daughter and her dying had been mentioned, like, once or twice at the very beginning of the series and then was kind of never brought up again. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't watching the series the whole time going, like, oh, man, like... How did his daughter die? Like, I am invested in this. Because I wasn't invested in this. Because they didn't get me invested in it. So those flashbacks were so weird. And I don't think they were emotionally earned. Um, I did read a theory that the parallels kind of come from the daughter. Apparently some some fans have the theory that the daughter saw the Upside Down. And that is how she got sick or something. I don't know. It's a theory. Because, like, that whole scene in the park where she looks really frightened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't really buy it. But also, if that is the case, the writers didn't give us any textual evidence for that, and so therefore that theory has no holds no water. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. You just mentioned that, uh, so no. I don't yeah. think it's very strong. Mm-hmm. I think that's, yeah. that's a tinfoil theory. So I just think that those flashbacks weren't emotionally earned and didn't they didn't add anything to the sequence because like it was dramatic enough with Will. Mm-hmm. We didn't need those to like feel anything besides the fact that like. It was weird having them elicit sympathy for Hopper after he had sold out Eleven. True. Yeah, that's true. It was a weird. It was a weird thing where he had sold her out, and we know what happens to her. And then they had these weird parallels and trying to elicit sympathy, and I was confused, and I was like, not emotionally in the right place for it. 
and these are just kind of the narrative things that I feel like they are just, it's very clear that they are well-intentioned, they have a lot of passion for the show, but they are freshman writers. Mm. Yeah. And need a little more experience. And I don't think that it's too derivative of the 80s nostalgia and, and whatnot that we've that we've seen in the past from shows that shows and movies that kind of like really drive home the 80s-ness of it. Mm-hmm. I feel like because of the character because this because of the strength of the characters, you can kind of the the, the fact that this these they're pulling from different 80s genres and and 80s culture. I think um, the characters are stronger than that, mm-hmm. and I think that you can enjoy the characters without being like, well, here we go with the Steven Spielberg plot, or here we go yeah. with the Stephen King plot, because I feel like they they do their best to kind of blend in all that together, especially as the the plots um, become more interwoven. Mm-hmm. It really be, it starts to become one story. Um, at, like for the first maybe six seven episodes, the different characters in their own like respective movie plots, aren't, movie plots and genres as well. And genres yeah. they don't really interact with each other. Like mm-hmm. um, I think at the very beginning you get the kids interacting with Hopper and the kids interacting with Nancy, and then you get. Nancy and Jonathan interacting with Hopper, and every once in a while they'll, they'll like, the, like it's funny that Nancy and uh, what's his, what's the kid's name? Will, Mike. Mike. Um, they interact at dinner time, but that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. And they're and then told, they have some moments at the end. Yeah, and they're in they're in their own worlds even when they're in dinner at dinner because uh, Mike is dealing with like Eleven, like roaming the house, kind of like ET, mm-hmm. and then you've got Nancy dealing with the fact that her parents don't like the fact that she's dating Steve Harrington. And, and then her best friend disappears. And her best Barb. friend disappears and no one really cares in the show except for her. Mm-hmm. Like everyone, okay, everyone talks about how no one cares about Barb in the show. Nancy cares about Barb. Yeah, although it is weird that her parents are just kind of so nonchalant about Barb disappearing. See, I, I disagree about the parents thing mm-hmm. and the Duffer Brothers explained this. Mm-hmm. But like, so you have the scene of Nancy calling her mom and like her mom being like, call me when you find her. She clearly sounds worried. Then you have the scene where you see Barb's parents at the Wheeler's house talking with the Wheeler's parents, mm-hmm. or with the Wheeler parents. So it's clear that they cared and were concerned for Barb, but the writers, if they went down that route, that was just another route they had to go down. Yeah. And to like make a tighter story, they just couldn't do that. It probably and would so have been too similar I, to Joyce. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's fair to be like, her parents didn't care. I think it was the writer's conscious choice. And I have a lot of problems with these writers, but this is one decision where I'm like, yeah, it would have it made for a tighter story. I yeah. can see that. So, and I think the problem with Barb is how, like, she died and that she was basically fridged. Yeah, well, she yeah, she was definitely. There's no way of of going around that. She was fridged. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's like sucks to have another female character fridged, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a sucky situation. Yeah, so can't really get around that. Mm-hmm. No. Um, but the rest of the show, I think, did a really good job of kind of starting out in in three different places um, and then tying it all together at the end. Mm-hmm. I think that they did a real like especially when the like the kids were facing off against the government agents in the in the middle school at the same time as um, uh, Nancy, Jonathan, and Steve facing off against the monster in Will's house. Um, and Jonathan's. I love um, that scene. I love that, that scene. I was saying, I'm like smiling because I'm like, I love that scene so like, much. Like, okay, Same. so. It's pointless, but I love it. So, like, they didn't have to, I mean, obviously, it, well, from their point of view, they think that's how they can defeat the monster. Mm-hmm. They don't know about Eleven being super powerful mm-hmm. or the government or what Joyce and, and um, 
uh, Chief Hopper are doing. Like mm-hmm. they think, like they're like again, they're in their own story. They, they're they in their final girl horror movie genre. Exactly. They they are the main characters in their own story, and mm-hmm. that's what every, that's what all of these characters are doing is that they they are the main characters in their own uh, genre and their own movie plot that mm-hmm. comes together. Um, and so the fact that even though yeah they didn't they didn't do jack shit with the monster except maybe hurt him a little bit and make him bleed, which was good because it was able to show um, Joyce and Nancy where to uh, Joyce and Hopper where to go in the upside down, mm-hmm. and uh, it also affected the monster when they when it got to Eleven and the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, can we talk about the, the the just the fact that like Steve Harrington who oh up, up, are we gonna get there already? I mean, we're we're we, gonna go to Steve we, Harrington. Yeah. Wait, I'm not ready. Okay, well, well, hold <laughs> we'll on. We'll talk about Steve later. We'll well, talk- hold on, hold on. I just want to say that like that was a great scene because it was just these kids <laughs> working together to like defeat evil um and the same thing with with the kids at the middle school too like they were like everyone was on their a-game trying to do their best and i think that's what these characters what i love about the show the most is these characters and i just want to adopt all the kids and protect them from the dangers of the upside down lucas and dustin especially lucas gets the short staff because he kind of has the job the like the non-believer, uh, yeah, unflattering job of being the non-believer and the jerk, kind of. And it's like, no, he's kind of right. You know, this girl is really suspicious. Like, we don't know what she's up to or where she's been. I mean, he's a realist. He's a pragmatist mm-hmm. um, for being 11 years old. But yeah. I think that of that group, you kind of have to have someone be that. It could not have been Dustin. You need a skeptic. Yeah. You need a skeptic, and Dustin yeah. is not a skeptic. He's the oh my god, this is so cool. He's like the. Like, I love Dustin so much. And then Mike is kind of obviously like the believer, the '80s protagonist who, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's the kid from ET. He's the, he's like that kid who stumbles onto like a greater world mm-hmm. with Eleven. That's probably why he was like the least interesting out of the three for me. Yeah, because <laughs> like not... Dustin and Lucas were way more and like cause enjoyable. Mike, Mike had to be the straight and narrow like protagonist of his own '80s. Spielberg movie. I still yeah. think he was pretty cute, though. He and Eleven's interactions were so adorable. Oh yeah, no, don't get me wrong. Like that, those were so great. But like he, ha- he couldn't be as wild or like as excitable as Dustin or as skeptic as Lucas. Because mm-hmm. except yeah. for when they believe that Eleven betrayed them. Mm-hmm. So I before because before we get into we get into Steve, <laughs> we will get into Steve. Um, I just oh, like, so I, <laughs> right. okay, guys. <laughs> Okay. Um, just for all our listeners, I just want you guys to know that before our podcast, we discussed um, Steve Harrington a little bit, and Anya started crying because she just I did she not. Loved Steve oh my god! So much. <laughs> wow. She's tearing up. <laughs> I don't know why I do this with you guys. Why am I? Why am I here? Because you love us. Because we're the best. All right. All right. Anyways, continue. Okay. Real quick, I wanted to. Get back to, like, narrative structure in the story real quick. Because, like, I kind of broke down my, like, issues with the narrative in, like, three different ways. One of them being the flashbacks and, like, things being emotionally earned. But I wanted to just mention the other two to you and see what you guys thought real quick. Because mm. um, I think um, one of my problems was that a lot of it was too vague in a way where it felt like, oh, the writers don't even know the answer to this either. Like, it felt like, it just felt like so much of, like, wait, what? And then it was like, oh, they don't even know how to answer this, do they? And it felt so much like, oh, well, we're going to answer it in season two. Except when you wrote this, you didn't know you were going to get a season two. Your story needs to be more self-sufficient than that. And so, like, I just had a problem. I feel like in the middle of the story, like, nothing happened. 
like I feel like like people were like discovering the same things we had already known mm, and they that, were just kind of going back and forth. That Will was still alive in the upside down. Like well, after just, we have the discovery of Will's body, the kind of the narrative momentum kind of slows down. Yeah. Or Will's fake body essentially. And then Yeah, and it kind of felt like they were waffling until they got to their finale. Mm-hmm. A little bit. I think that's actually a common problem, not only with Stranger Things, but also with Netflix shows in general. Because they have to, like, they have that short 13-episode, like, or 8-episode structure, but they kind of have to finish off the first act and then kind of until this, the final act, like, begins. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Daredevil and yeah. Jones. Daredevil yeah. especially had that problem. Like, they just kind of, like, have a whole detour in, like, the middle act of the story just to kind of let you have a breather yeah. at the same time. But it's it's definitely, like, it's a little bit dull sometimes. I've, and I've seen that with House of Cards. Like, mm-hmm. the first and third, the yeah. fir- like, the first couple episodes will be really momentous and then, um, or full of momentum. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the, the next six will be kind of, like, just dull and then like the last three will be like really like oh my gosh let's, yeah oh my like so much things are happening and like mm-hmm. i feel like that's a a weird thing that every netflix show kind of deals with at some point so it's, a, it's, it's almost like a binge i think yeah it's problem. a binge problem i think mm-hmm. it's the act structure that they're going with to go into mm-hmm. like literary terms but yeah they're, yeah. they're not really yeah they're not going with a, a traditional three-act structure that we see in movies for example or even like a four-act structure it's almost like I don't even know like what their structure, how you would describe it. It's just kind of like one and a half or something. Yeah, like, like the first half of the show will always be like really solid, and then mm-hmm. like, and then you can kind of see when things switch, mm-hmm. and then it kind of takes time to build back up to the to like the finale of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. feel like that is a product of, like you guys said, of, of binging a television show because they, a lot of the, I mean, they know that they're re- like they go in knowing they're releasing every episode at once, mm-hmm. and people are going to mm-hmm. binge watch it. Um, yeah, and so. <laughs> You can kind of tell yeah. that that's a, a thing that's happening, um, and especially with Stranger Things, I feel like it could be six episodes, it could be seven. I think eight kind of pushed it a little bit mm-hmm. far, which is really mm-hmm. funny p- considering that people were complaining about the fact that Daredevil was twelve episodes or thirteen, and that it should have been like ten. So like, apparently we we just can't get it. We just can't get we like can't get the, it right. the episode title, like the episode l- amount. Right. It also depends on the show and the writers and stuff. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, and I will say to its credit, I didn't find it dull. Like, I did want to keep watching every episode. Mm. Like, to its credit, I was interested in being like, yes, play the next one. I just found the middle kind of frustrating because I felt like we were getting nowhere. And it wasn't... It just, yeah. Yeah, there was some waffling there. Because I remember there was a part where um, we focused more on Joyce and Hopper's conspiracy subplot and they they go visit like the woman who uh-huh. had uh, like had her child like adopted by the government yeah that's 11 right we're all, we're all yeah it was 11. it was 11 um, 11 yeah yeah so then like they have the kind of implications that there are more of these children but then they don't really go anywhere with that plot other than just like oh look at like, the sad mother like 10 other children <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i mean de- again it, it definitely seems like the writers either didn't know or they specifically left up for season two which is fine you need to like leave room to grow up your tv show to like the next season but i feel like not to the extent this show did mm-hmm. it felt like it left a lot to be like, oh, we'll just explore it in season two. And I was like, okay, well, that's not how TV writing works, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my last thing was, this is probably my biggest thing, actually, is that I felt like a lot of things happened in the series because the writers needed them to, rather mm-hmm. than because it made sense for the characters to actually do it. Yeah. 
So, like, I know a lot of people have issue with, like, Nancy crawling in the demon tree, and I do too, and it felt entirely because the writers were like, well, crap, we need her to get into the Upside Down, and I was like, she's not gonna go in the demon tree, and then she went in the demon tree, and I was like, oh my god. Ugh. Yeah, I think it's... The writers just needed you there. I think that's a um, a symptom of the fact that they were trying to do this whole, like, horror movie genre. Yeah. And, like, you kind of... In that in those genres, you kind of have characters do things that you clearly don't... That normal people wouldn't do. Normal, normal people but, wouldn't yeah. just... Well, that's the, and that's the thing. It's a valid criticism. I'm mm-hmm. not taking away anything from your criticism on mm-hmm. you. I feel like that's... It's just a trope. It's a trope, they, that, they, that they should not have done, but I think that for their own... For their own sake, to to have that happen, they kind of had to to actually do that that trope. I feel like to their better judgment, because I feel like these guys yeah. they, these guys are clearly smart. They they and they love these movies, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't think they look at the, them with the rose colored glasses that a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. Even though this show does get that criticism, um, I feel yeah. like they were they kind of like yeah, like they were almost like forced by their own. Uh, Adherence to these genres that mm-hmm. they had that they had to have something like yeah. Nancy, who's a smart girl going yeah. to the demon tree. My going biggest issue that one, <laughs> demon yeah, tree. that that one I'm a little more okay with. The one the issue that I like the biggest example of this that I have the biggest issue with is Jonathan taking those creepy photos, which yeah. these two will know that I have just a huge issue with in general, I and a- I it. It soured Jonathan for me for like the say, rest of the series. I thought that was going to stop you from watching the TV show. You were like that. <laughs> You're like, I can't. This is terrible because like, he was like the the first sympathetic character that you have aside from the kids, and you're just like, why would you betray me? Like I'm like that? so. I'm like still. I'm like still like. I don't want to deal with you, Jonathan. Like actually, it soured Jonathan for me for the like. And now I'm like, I don't really care about you, Jonathan. I thought because it was an interesting facet to his his uh, personality actually because I was just like, I oh, did, he's flawed, like super flawed because he takes creepy yes, pics. Yes, except the show never, the show expects you to be sympathetic towards him mm-hmm. for getting his camera broken, except Steve was completely in the right in breaking his, I was like, yeah, Steve, break that camera, like, you violated your privacy, like, it, but the show wants you to be on on Jonathan's side, which mm-hmm. is so weird to me, but it, I was like, why is Jonathan, like, Nancy confronts him about it in the forest, we never get an actual answer about why he took the photos, and it seemed like it only existed for Nancy to then get the ripped photo and discover the monster in the photo, which then leads her to Steve's house, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why was Jonathan taking those photos? Super creepy. Was it only so Nancy could discover the monster in the photo? If so, there, I just, that scene makes literally no sense to me. I'm I, so confused. I have a it. theory. I have a theory. Okay. So you have like that artsy, tortured, um, kind of tropey uh, version of that, the guy, the angsty photographer, creative guy in your high school who's just kind of like, he's often the the tortured protagonist or like the love interest in a lot of 80s and 90s movies. And he's we West have, Bentley in American he's, Beauty. He's American Beauty's West Bentley. And he's like, and on the, on the flip side, you also have the psychotic Christian Slater and Heathers. And I think this was an interesting inversion of that expectation of, of but Jonathan being like that artsy tortured guy and you wanting to sympathize with him and be like oh he is love interest that's what he's meant to be and like put him on that pedestal but it inverts that by making him by pointing out that this kind of personality type is creepy and they have issues and I thought that was a pointed reference to like again the genre that they're doing as well as just like 
kind of subverting it. Yeah, all. subverting it and bringing it to the modern age. And I think I like really bringing like in more awareness of that. And I, yeah. And I do like the fact that Nancy called him out on his bullshit mm-hmm. when he was talking about like I see a girl who doesn't. Oh my god, I hated that. <laughs> and she just wants to be herself. And again, oh I think that my doubles god. down. I think that doubles down on my theory yeah. that they're trying to bring yes. awareness to like this trope of this of the character. And like how he. Like, yeah. And, and like they're and she's like that is such bullshit and mm-hmm. I'm like. It is. It is such bullshit. And I feel like... I I like that theory. Yeah. And I think that's what they're trying to do with a lot of the characters. So we're moving on... To the characters! characters ...in Stranger Things. Which is definitely like... That was really cute and like in unison, guys. That was great. The show are the characters. Yes. So I think that we see a lot of like these, again, tropey characters that we see in a lot of 80s movies, different genres like the the Final Girl horror movie, the E.T. kids, the conspiracy... The Steven Spielberg yeah, conspiracy kids. The Steven Spielberg conspiracy kids. And then and we're kind of bringing them into a modern light and sort of exposing both their flaws but also bringing um, like this character back into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I think that like we do that with Jonathan, like I said before, but also with... Steve Harrington, who <laughs> your boy, your boy Anya's Steve. boy Steve, um, and he kind of plays Stop. that like typical bad boyfriend that you see in a lot of '80s movies. But mm-hmm. then the he, kind that you would assume would be like uh, the guy who gets punched in the end by Jonathan, and mm-hmm. then Jonathan and Nancy are making out over his body. Yeah, that's, kind of <laughs> that's, weird. that's a little bit weird. I just, I, yeah, Ugh, Steve. All right, Steve. Anya, tell us about Steve. Okay, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I went into the show expecting to not like him because I feel like I had heard reactions around the web being like, Steve's a jerk, blah, blah, blah. And then I started watching it and I was like, okay, like, he's kind of a jerk, kind of a douche. But, like, he wasn't as bad as I thought he would be. And, like, he clearly is into Nancy. <laughs> I just dropped my pen. It's fine. Um, He's clearly into Nancy and Nancy's into him. And I was like, cool, girl. Like, do your thing. Own your agency. Be with who you want to be with. And then... Midway through the series, there's that whole graffiti bit. And I was like, damn it. I was rooting for you, Steve. And I was like, I hate you now. I'm never going to forgive you for this. And then, and then the show twisted everything. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) Because then he ditches his friend, his jerk friend, and goes and, like, helps Jonathan and Nancy. And I was like, yeah, Steve! And not only that, he he wipes the graffiti off the marquee of the movie theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a big thing, because I feel like, you know, he's like, I just want to help. Yeah, I feel like... I did get a little emotional that part. (laughs) I know. I just, like, I... I remember I was feeling really conflicted about it, because I was like, oh, man, but that whole graffiti thing, I'm like, that is not okay. And I don't think him trying to become a better person excuses that. It's still a really, like, shitty thing that he did. Um, But I was really convicted, because I was like, oh, God, am I allowed to like a male character like this who, like, has the opportunity to grow? And then I was like, yes, I am. Like, ugh. But I think it introduces a really interesting idea of, like, toxic and abusive friendships. Mm. I was telling you guys this earlier. I live, like, messaged them while I was watching Stranger Things. They had already seen it. And I was mentioning to them that, like, a lot of media, I feel, focuses on either abusive romantic relationships or abusive family relationships. Mm -hmm. And they kind of rarely get into, like, what happens if you get into, like, a group of friends who are really toxic and abusive. And I feel like this show introduced that a little bit. I kind of want more Mm -hmm. of, like, Steve having these friends who are really nasty and, like, really toxic and they kind of turn him into a person that maybe he doesn't want to be. Yeah, they but he's almost 
Yeah. They clearly enable him. Yeah, they're exactly. turning him into the 80s movie villain, but exactly. he's breaking he's out not, of that shell. Yeah, and it's like, but he's also, like, you can see, like, why it would be scary to kind of have done that earlier. Like, having a friend group in high school is everything. Mm-hmm. And, like, social status and things like that. And maybe he grew up in an environment where he was just taught to be kind of entitled about things and was fostered as just kind of having an ego and like doesn't excuse anything, but it explains it. And it, I think it makes for kind of a rich character who can like break out of that mold, see that happening to him, break out and kind of want to make up for his past mistakes and grow as a character. So, so Anya has given Steve a lot of thought. I not expecting that. I remember, so I had a friend call me last night after I finished Stranger Things and she was like, we got to talk about that last scene. And which I thought she was talking scene? about, I know, I thought she was talking about Will in the bathroom, which we can mention in a minute because that mm. scene is still giving me chills. Mm. Oh my God, Will is my new tiny child that I want to protect at all costs. Will is so cute. I want to protect all the oh, tiny, tiny children. Ch- I know, but like Will, I'm just like, uh, he has like PTSD and I'm just like, uh, child. He has like that wide eyed, just like vulnerability no, the so entire time. I know. So like, I thought she was talking about that scene because I was like, I know, me too, poor Will. And then she was like, no, not that scene. And I was like, what? And she was like, Nancy and Steve on the couch together and she sounded like so enraged. It's funny, she listens to this. So Leah, shout out to you. <laughs> uh, I hope that you have now seen the light with Steve. But she was like, let's talk about that scene and I was like, I'm into it. <laughs> and then I went into my whole explanation of Steve and why I think Steve is great. And I'm like excited about to see where Steve goes. Anyway, I love Steve. I will stop talking now. <laughs> it's okay. Anyways, I think that my theory actually applies in addition to Steve. It applies to all the characters in the show in that they're like, they are cut straight from the cloth of the 80s movie genre, but then they become more fleshed out and kind of given this modern twist to them, as well as just like pointing out the flaws and um, uh, non flaws of like these perfect, like these 80s tropes. Traits. Yeah, better traits. So you see that in like Hopper, who is kind of that roguish. Um, Indiana Jones type character that will be loved. I, okay, will be loved if him. we get a chance to, I want to talk about Hopper for yeah. a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. You know, so, something. Hopper is great because at first you think he's going to be this like, almost almost like the like, cop that doesn't want to be a cop. The bumbling cop. The bubbling cop because mm-hmm. you because th- you see him like he's got a he's got like, uh like, beer bottles from the night before out and like uh, probably pills and like he you, you see him being like like haunted by his past of the fact that his daughter passed away due to cancer and um his his wife left him um and that he wa- or or that he had to leave because it seemed like he was a, he was a city cop mm-hmm. and now probably in Indianapolis or something and now he's he's in this small town he's like he went from being a small fish to a big um he went from being a small fish in a big city to vice versa mm-hmm. um and so now he's like gone from being like that to this roguish Indiana Jones character who gets shit done when he needs to get shit done. Mm-hmm. And I really love that they kind of subvert that. Yeah. I think that the, all the characters are just like wonderful wonderful subversions of it. Except for maybe the E.T. kids. They're kind of just like cut straight from that They kind of just exist. Cloth. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean like they're adorable and I want to protect all of them but at the same time like they're probably the ones that are closest to what we expect of those characters. I do want to give a shout out to Joyce though because I, I love her so much. I love Winona and I think that she plays wonderfully into that hysterical mom who's also right which is also 
like it's really great. She really gives great depth to that performance, and she's like so. The scenes with her and Elle. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yes, when she's just like calming her, and she's like, "If you need anything, I'm here," and like that's the. I was like emotional. I love that also on a meta level because Mm -hmm. it's Winona Ryder who was a child actress of Mm -hmm. eleven when she started, and so it's basically her giving comfort and advice to another child actress mm-hmm. at, her, at the same age. So it's almost like this like pa- passing of the torch. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that that scene worked on two different levels. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, Stranger Things has like a lot of great metatextual levels to it, like Willoughby was saying. And I think that despite you know its criticisms of being derivative or having narrative plot holes and everything, I think it pulls wonderfully from those 80s genres that it, it kind of mashes together and creates like a whole nother beast that's like the reason that I liked it because I didn't think at all that it was derivative or like a, an aping like these better movies I think that it really kind of pulled together the best of the 80s mm-hmm. it was like a best of best hits kind of thing and like created a good original story and mm-hmm. that's what I liked about it and like I like to think that my theory of for the characters applies like the whole show that's like what it's doing for the 80s genre did you guys either either of you see Super 8 I did see Super 8. No. So, okay, so what? I think this is a better version of Super 8. Yeah, like this versus Super 8. Super 8 gets all of, like, the shallow surface details of those 80s movies, but Super 8 kind of takes that from a shallow surface level and doesn't have, like, doesn't capture the heart of the 80s movies, and I think that's what Stranger Things does. Um, I think it, like, in a way transcends that genre, or, like, transcends that kind of nostalgia, rose-colored glasses... Um, criticism that it has the transcends the 80s movie um, and I hope that like people other shows and other movie networks and things don't take the wrong lessons from Stranger Things and we get another deluge of 80s reboots or um, yeah. references um, I think uh, that Ready Player One the upcoming adaptation of a book that is just basically one giant 80s reference and um, is going to be produced by Steven Spielberg could fall in that danger, so I hope that like Stranger Things is not a tipping point, but a learning curve. So, I think nice. That, that was a great ending. Thank you. <laughs> I think that nicely wraps up our discussion on Stranger Things. Uh, if you guys have thoughts, please tell us on our social medias. But first, the last segment of our episode, I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. All right, so, Anya, why don't you start us off? What do you really like this week? I like that Hollywood is appealing to my inner romantic side this week. So there are two things. Um, I am obsessed with the newest trailer for La La Land and the fact that it's getting stellar reviews out of all the festivals. It looks beautiful. It looks beautiful, and I'm, like, my inner, like, romantic and, like, Hollywood romantic it's just like soaring at the trailer and like I keep singing that song that Emma Stone sings in the trailer to myself and it's just so beautiful so I'm like very excited and then the second thing on this note is uh the brief table read from Beauty and the Beast this week that had Dan Stevens and Emma Watson reading some of the script and the fact that I'm just like I'm like ready for like the romance of Beauty and the Beast to be in live action. It was my favorite uh, Disney film growing up. It was like my first favorite film. Um, and I'm just very excited for it. And Dan Stevens is 
I have a lot of feelings about Dan Stevens now. I was skeptical about Stan- Dan Stevens at first. Thought he was just cast as another pretty face, um, but his voice in that table read, you that know, voice. it awoke something. I wonder. I wonder if <laughs> oh. it's gonna. <laughs> oh, Willoughby! Now I'm like Willoughby should know what I said. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, uh, if they're gonna alter his voice digitally at all. Like, if they're gonna make it. D- I hope rider. not, because. I hope not. That voice is perfect as it is. I was like, <laughs> all right, fine, I'm gonna say it. Okay. I feel like I have to now because I've teased it. I was like, I told HT, I was like, Dan Stevens' voice <laughs> has elicited a new sexual awakening for me. <laughs> oh my. Oh my. <laughs> His voice is beast. It's like, it's like equal parts gruff, but vulnerable, but awkward. It's like all the things about beast that makes him a great character. And I'm like, yes. And the best Disney prince. And I'm, yeah. Well, and, oh, well, mm, Naveen oh, exists. It's true, but... Girl, Naveen also out, exists. I just want to point out that Prince Adam has red hair, so... Gingers unite. Points for that. But Naveen. I mean, so does Prince Han of the Southern Isles. <laughs> you like him, too. <laughs> Who's my other bae. I was going to say, you like Prince Hans, too. I don't understand too. why you like Prince Hans. It's so against, it still goes so against whatever you like in general. I know. Your I, favorite my character. trash. I really liked that Prince Hans had uh, the um, mutton, mutton chops. chops. Which, uh, yes. if you knew me in college, I had most of that. Oh, you of did? That, of those four years. He rocked the mutton chops. So he I did. was like, oh, we got a really cool red hair guy. And then he turned out to be evil. I'm like... Damn it. <laughs> um, I, still yes. I still got Disney's Hercules. You do. You do. Um, but yeah, I'm super into Dan Stevens, and I think him and Emma Watson already have chemistry just at that table read. Mm-hmm. And so I'm ready for kind of the epic romance of... Because I feel like Beauty and the Beast is one of the Disney's most romantic films, and I'm really excited to see that in live action on the big screen. And so I'm just like, La La Land, Beauty and the Beast. I'm like, yes, my hopeless romantic is appeased. Yes. We need more of those. <laughs> All right. We do. Um, I'm going to go next because uh, I've been wanting to talk about this really, really, like, for a while. I really, really like that Utada Hikaru is going to be releasing a new album. Um, yes. If you don't know her, she sang the theme song for Kingdom Hearts, Simple and Clean, as well as Kingdom Hearts 2, Sanctuary. And I fell in love with her and her voice after I heard Simple and Clean in Kingdom Hearts. I got really into her and basically like bought all her albums. I like read up her Wikipedia article, like her entire, I don't know, 3,000 word <laughs> Wikipedia article. I know a lot about her and she kind of got me through high school. Like uh, she was that really calming, angsty album that I put on whenever I was sad and I would cry to her music. And she went on a, a hiatus um, in 2010 uh, and she hasn't put out any new music for the past like Six years. Uh, six years. Um, she put out one song in 2012 for like the Neon Genesis Evangelion movie. Um, and it was beautiful, by the way. Uh, but she hasn't put an album out in eight years either. So I was just like, I, I actually cried when she went on hiatus. I was oh. so sad. I really love her. Like I, at one point, when like when she put out an English album in 2009, I like had the same haircut as her. Like it wasn't even intentional. That's amazing. I got like. I kind of subliminally got the same haircut. I was like, oh, hey, it's the same haircut as Utadi Akaro. That delights me. I mean, who hasn't gotten a, uh, a haircut based off of someone they really like in pop culture? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Obi-Wan. No, <coughs> 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 um, So I'm, I'm really excited. She has a new album called Phantom. It's coming out September 23rd. Um, it's supposed to be a um, 
like homage, I guess, to her mother who recently who passed away like three years ago. She committed suicide actually, um, and she used to be an Inca singer, like her her mother did. Uh, so it's like she kind of um, her, her her new album is like very Japanese. She has like the same haircut that her mother did, and it's like it's definitely like her like working through her grief and stuff like that and it's it sounds so beautiful and I'm just like I'm so excited for her new album and just like I'm probably gonna cry when I listen to it because I'll just like I can't wait I can't I'm so happy that she's back my Tumblr icon I already changed it to Utade Akario because I saw that <laughs> I changed that and also my my Twitter like cover photo I love her so much and I'm so happy she's back she's such a beautiful like she's one of the few art, like artists out there that I like really admire for their artistry over like anything else. I think she's like one of the greatest like singer, songwriter, producers out there. And she's like this beautiful lyricist too. Like I've I've read a lot of her lyrics and they're just like poetry. So I'm really excited for her to come back. And... One day, HT, I want to be as happy as you are when you talk about your favorite musicians. <laughs> it's like my happy place. It is. It makes me so it's happy. It's you, you talking about your musicians. I'm just like, oh, this is so happy and pure. <laughs> It is pure. That's what it's like. Well, I I don't listen to a lot of music, but when I do love a musician, it's like, it is that feeling that a lot of people have who are passionate about music have. They like, it's just them and the music, them and the music, me and the music, like that. Is that a Britney? Is that a Britney album? I think so. I don't remember. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Anyways, that's my really like for this week. Willoughby. Yes, me. Hi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hello. Mine is uh, once again. Star Wars, uh, specifically two things. Um, one, I've been really getting into the comic books that they've been releasing since uh, Disney acquired Lucasfilm. Are you um, reading the Poe Dameron one? Not yet. I've been reading. <gasps> all of them. I'm sorry, but I've, I've been re- I've been I've been getting up to the ones that take place after A New Hope. So I'm, I'm feeling personally offended and victimized. <laughs> Please don't. But um, uh, so I've been re- I've been getting to, into the ones the ones that. Uh, all the ones that I've been reading have been taking place after A New Hope. So it's uh, the Rebels, uh, Luke, Han, and Leia dealing with like trying to find a new base before they get to Hoth. Um, I've been, I've been, I went to Barnes and Noble and I collected like all the issues. They have like the paper, the trades, the trade paperbacks that come out every I don't know, six months. Um, so I bought all of those. Uh, there's a singular Darth Vader um, comic book that that's been running for two years that um, ends actually on my birthday. Um, so I've been catching up with that. I, I really love that one because um, there's a whole new depth to Darth Vader uh, that you don't see. And you see it's basically other characters reacting to him that you kind of, because obviously he has no emotion on his face. Um, but then there's a lot of internalized stuff that's going on with like finding out who the kid who destroyed the Death Star is. He finds that out. He's like, mm, that's my son. Oh gosh, okay. So he has to deal with that. He I'm did, sure he said that in that exact high pitch. Exactly. Way. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> the Dark Lord of the Sith. Um, and he, he also has like this really cool character, Dr. Afra, who's this like smuggler um, archaeologist, and she's really cool. Um, she's like kind of like his ally, doing like the dirty work for Darth Vader, like getting like stuff done. Um, so I really like that. Plus. Uh, on Friday, I saw Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope ah. in the theater at the AFI um, Silver Spring Cultural Center Theater Place. Um, they've been doing a uh, a commemoration of John Williams' best uh, movies because uh, he's getting an AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And on Friday, 
I went on a date to see Star Wars in the movie theaters. So that was really cool. Uh, and that was really fun. Um, the sound of the Millennium Falcon is now my new favorite Star Wars sound, especially after seeing it, hearing that in the theater. Just like the rumbling, like the theater rumbled whenever it flew by. Um, the That's tie, awesome. The TIE Fighter is my second favorite. It used to be my favorite, but now the Millennium Falcon is like, it, it was like, oh man, this is powerful. <laughs> That's yeah, so cool. That junk. So yeah, Star Wars, once again, my really, really Yay. like this week. Well, that is our episode. If you guys have any thoughts about Stranger Things, and I'm sure you all do because everyone does, <laughs> or if you have thoughts on Star Wars, the comics, the movies, etc., if you have thoughts on Utada Hikaru's having a new album, that it comes out soon, and if you're so excited, or if you have thoughts on Hollywood and romanticism in various forms, Please come chat with us about those. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're on uh, Twitter if you go to at Falcon Podcast. We have a blog, millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud, on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe to us both there. Um, And where can they find you guys? You can find me at htrenbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.